0: Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Stats, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas, and it is a big episode around here. We're talking to Heather Ann Thompson, the Pulitzer Prize winning author of this month's book club pick and one of my favorite books, Blood in the Water, the Attica Prison Uprising of 1971 and its legacy. Heather talks with us today about the legacy of the Attica Prison Uprising 50 years later and the ways that winning the Pulitzer Prize has affected the book. There are no spoilers on today's episode. It is a great primer to get you ready to read along with us this month. The Sex Book Club pick is Blood in the Water by Heather Ann Thompson, and we'll discuss the book on the show on Wednesday, September 29th with Derricka Purnell. I'm reminding you to check out The Stacks on Patreon. That's a website where you can contribute monthly to making the show possible and in exchange for your generosity, you earn exclusive perks like our new perk, a bonus episode every single month, shout outs on the show and of course our monthly virtual book club discussion where we talk about The Stacks book club pick. If you're interested in joining and being a recipient of my eternal gratitude, head to patreon.com slash The Stacks or click the link in the show notes. I wanna give a special shout out to our newest members of the Stacks Pack. Ileana Garriga, Matt Schmidt, Kate M. Lair, Shelby Clark, Demetrius Frazier, Casey, Victoria, Reginald Dwayne Betts, and Nancy. Thank you all so much. If supporting the show through Patreon is not an option for you, I 1000% get it. Here are some free and extremely helpful ways you can support the show. One, subscribe. Two, leave a review. Three, tell people you know to listen. And of course, you can always talk about the show on social media. It goes a long way and it's all completely free. All right, now it's time for my conversation with the Heather Ann Thompson. Okay, you guys, I am so excited for today's guest. I can't believe I get to say this. But finally, here on the Stacks today is author of the Stacks September book club pick Blood in the Water. It is Heather Ann Thompson. Heather, thank you so much for being here.
1: So great to be here.
0: Okay, I just have to start here. You probably don't know this, but a lot of people at home do. Your book, Blood in the Water, is the reason that I started this podcast. Uh, I read the book back in 2017. I loved it so much. I was dying to talk about it. I went to my mom, and I was like, mom what do you know about Attica? And she was like, I think a bunch of prisoners killed a bunch of people. And I was like, that's not what happened. You don't know the story. So I was like, let me go on my podcast app and see what's going on. See if there's any podcasts about this incredible book. And I could only really find two episodes one was some literary podcast and they were talking about it really smart in a way that I was like okay you guys are smart like great and then the other one was a lawyer podcast talking about the legal cases and the legality of what had happened you know during the event and afterwards and I was like I actually don't really care about that this that much and so I was like you know what Maybe I should make a podcast that will talk about the books that I want to talk about in the way that I want to talk about it, so for all of that, I'm extremely grateful for you and for you being here in this huge full circle moment
1: well i'm you know everything that you say first of all, thank you for saying that it's uh your reaction to the book is uh, it's the reaction that I had really hoped for because it was my reaction to learning about Attica myself i Uh, I'm really ashamed to say that even though I was a historian of the civil rights movement and a historian of black history growing up in Detroit and, you know, growing up in a, in an overwhelmingly black city, that was a story I felt like I should have known. I felt like it was a story that was something that should have just been part of my own um, understanding of American history. And when I agreed to, uh, write this book. I mean, I not agreed. I was, I was, you know, it's the book I wanted to write. I was like, wow, this is a, this is a civil rights story behind bars. And I was really eager to make it my next project and it just felled me that I had no idea what this story was. I mean, I, I sort of intuited that it was, you know, going to be more complicated than, <laughs> than I had imagined, but I didn't understand that this was a, 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 kind of this apocryphal story in American history that everybody had misunderstood and that the reason why we misunderstood it was because we had all been actively, deliberately lied to by uh, people with tremendous power who deliberately wanted us to believe that something very different had happened at this prison. And in a nutshell, this was a story of people who had been serving time in one of New York's upstate, maximum security facilities, they were standing together for basic human rights behind bars, and they had negotiated with the state of New York for these human rights for four long days and four long nights. This prison uprising was uh, put down extraordinarily violently, but the American people had been told that the deaths that resulted were because of the prisoners. And that the horror, that the trauma that resulted was because the prisoners had created it. And it turns out that that's not at all what happened. And in fact, what happened was uh, an orgy of violence committed by uh, the New York State police and corrections officers. And it was an orgy of violence that had been subsequently covered up for the next 45 years. So the book that I set out to write uh, took 13 years. Because it was really about trying to figure out what had happened and really running across every roadblock you can imagine to piece together that story. So so the fact that I didn't know it and you didn't know it, and, and to be frank, the American public didn't know it, is everything. It, it really meant that, that we were sold a false bill of goods. And, and to be blunt, it changed American history that we didn't know it.
0: Yeah, I think that that's one of the things that sticks with me after reading the book. I just, I read it in 2017, like I mentioned, and I just reread it in preparation for book club and everything. And I think just thinking about all of the what ifs about American history, had I known about this story, had this story's legacy been part of the civil rights that were taught and all of that, like that sort of thinking. It, it, it makes me really sad, actually. Like, it may, I feel like I could cry when I think about all that, all that these people went through and how little has been allowed to impact the bigger conversation around civil rights and prisoner rights and all of that stuff. Um, one of the things that you kind of start the book out talking about in the introduction is the research that you did and the documents that you came mm-hmm. across, and I'm really curious— when you came across the dot I think it was in Buffalo or in Erie County and then in one other place, like when you finally got access to these documents, what did you what was that moment like for you as someone who's sort of investigating and researching, and also what did you think the book was going to be like before you were able to get all those documents
1: so when I started the project. You know, a historian thinks that they're going to just go into the archives and they're going to ask for box, you know, 20, folder 13, and they're going to start digging into the research and be able to reproduce the story. And I quickly figured out that even though the state of New York had you know, hundreds and hundreds of boxes related to Attica that I wasn't going to be able to get any of them. Hmm. And so I had to, uh, start thinking about who had the, the, the copy, the, you know, who had the original, who had something that I wasn't going to be able to see that they had, but I knew somebody else must know the real story. And, and thankfully, you know, the, the, the incarcerated folks themselves who had survived it were still telling their stories and, the former guards who were inside were telling their stories. And the, the lawyers who had kept the story alive were willing to speak to me, thank goodness. So I had a lot. Uh, I had quite a bit to go on. But but the real mystery for me remained, how could it be that ultimately you had 1,300 men standing up for these basic human rights Ultimately, on the fifth day, they are gunned down. The 128 of them are shot. Some of them, you know, six and seven times. Thirty-nine of them are killed, both corrections officers and um, and prisoners. And no corrections officer, no trooper is ever held accountable. But specifically no trooper, because they're the ones with the guns, And I couldn't just figure out how could this have happened? How how could a cover-up be that comprehensive that not a single person gets indicted? Well, of course, we know, right? We know that uh, those cover-ups happened all the time in the modern era, but I wanted to see how it actually worked. So where are the documents? Who's who's covering up for whom? And, of course, that paperwork nobody's collecting, at least on the prisoner end, at least on the the survivor end. No one's got that paperwork. So – that's what I kept digging for, and I happened upon a cache of records that was in uh, the Erie County Courthouse, as you mentioned. And I, I think I found it because, frankly, they just didn't know it was there. Mm. I think, in retrospect, it was a judge's a courtroom who had passed away, and it was just being moved uh, out of that uh, out of that room, out of his chambers into storage, or perhaps I found it and, it, and it was just out of that sheer stroke of luck that I found the paperwork, um, a blizzard, frankly, of paperwork <laughs> that allowed me um, to finally piece together um, who the shooters were that had been protected after, you know, 4, 45 years, Um, You know, the the sheer level of brutality, because it wasn't just that these men had been shot. It was that they had been tortured. It was that the brutality went on for months and weeks. And the thing was, is that we actually didn't know it because the prisoners had been telling us. Um, they had been reporting their trauma it wasn't that we didn't know it it was that th- they had never been able to have the recognition in mm. a court of law that it had happened to them and then the names had never been stated in public it had never you know their their trauma had not been honored by naming it if you will and so thankfully uh it was put in the book and also, of course, it had been named in a court of law in a civil suit, thankfully, because the lawyers had had brought it to the public's attention. But all of that trauma that was swept under the rug by the state of New York had consequences for the nation. And it was just my hope that by telling the story in this book, that we would um, honor it, first of all, that the trauma that they went through, but also Learn from the history and recognize that when we don't get our history right, not only do we not only do we repeat it, as the adage says, but we we actually um, we go we go on a, on a path that has devastating consequences. And in this case, uh, we actually create a prison system that's worse. We create a justice system that's more brutal. Um, and, and, you know, as you and I sit here today. Uh, we are still reaping the consequences of the trauma that happened at Attica that day 50 years ago.
0: Do you think that the consequences that we're seeing now are a direct response? And and not just now, but what we've seen, like the way that the prison system has changed over the last 50 years, do you think a lot of that is a direct response to what happened in 1971? Or do you think that a lot of what we're seeing now would have happened? It was the natural progression of things.
1: I don't think there's any question that what we are seeing today in our criminal justice system and specifically our prisons has everything to do with what happened at Attica. Not that it is all to blame on what happened in that devastating last day at Attica, but it is that Attica was part and parcel of a series of events that happened in the 19, late 1960s, in particular in early 1970s, where people stood up for basic human rights and equality and social justice, and in particular, racial justice. And in every one of those incidents, the preponderance of the violence that took place was state violence. Mm. But the American people were told a flat series of lies about what that violence was. And whether it was uh, whether it was Orangeburg, South Carolina, whether it was Attica, frankly, whether it was Kent State,
0: right. whether
1: it was the Democratic National Convention of 68, anytime anyone from the streets, the grassroots movements for social justice. Every time those happened, they were greeted with police batons, police bullets, um, the Black Panther Party, the Young Lords Party, any social movement that tried to uh, essentially ask America to make good on its promise of uh, we are, in fact, a, a, a land of equal opportunity and equality. We are, in fact, a level playing field. When it looked like that playing field might, in fact, level to a certain extent, um, the response was things like assassinations of people like Fred Hampton, things like showing up at Attica with uh, state troopers armed with uh, their own personal weapons, state issue weapons. You know, dropping tear gas on uh, unarmed men and then going in there and within 15 minutes discharging thousands and thousands of rounds of ammunition and just literally uh, layering a D yard with bullets until it's over. And then telling the American people that something completely different happened, which is that the prisoners had killed the hostages. Right. The prisoners had not killed a single hostage. That's not what happened. Right. Um, and and so, so I do think that we cannot look back on the 1960s and the right turn that we took afterwards and say that uh, it is not a direct result of us kind of backlashing to something that we had, in fact, been lied to about. Yeah.
0: What was it that made you want to write this story? Like what was the what was the thing you were like? I want to sit down and spend a lot of time with with Attica.
1: Mm. You know, it's such an interesting question because again, it, it comes kind of goes back to my own sort of sense of embarrassment about uh, my own naivete or my own um, kind of sense of shame about what I didn't see that was right in front of me. I grew up in the city of Detroit. And I graduated from high school in 1981, which was the nadir of, you know, in so many ways. Well, I thought it was the nadir. It actually turns out to get much worse, but really the (laughs) drug war. And I, you know, graduated from an inner city high school and all around me, the drug war was happening. My friends were you know getting uh, arrested? People were going away. Uh, this the city was d- getting destroyed around me. Um, the city, in fact, that I felt had you know was an incredible city. It was a black led city. Everyone that I knew who was smarter than me, you know, who was you know th- this was an extraordinary city of, of black leadership and everything else, and it was being gutted from within. By the drug war, but to me it was also normal. It was just happening. Mm. You're, it's happening in real time, and and so I looked around at it and I thought, well, you know, oh, it's it's our fault. Meaning, like, you know, oh, you know, so and so shouldn't have. Oh, it's your fault. You shouldn't have sold that marijuana, or you know, you know, what an idiot. You should have stayed in school, or you know, it t- <laughs> you know, it personalizing everything right. that was happening around us, because even I couldn't see. That what was happening around us was part of a social policy that was unprecedented in American history. Even I couldn't see that we were locking up more people in at any other time in American history, and in hmm. and more than in any other planet, you know, any other country on the planet. And Great. so, by the time I decided to look at this as a historian, I was kind of stunned myself at wow, how you know what in the world is going on here? So I was interested in taking a step back at Attica and saying, you know what? In 1970, we had as many people in prison as every other kind of country. You know, nothing unusual about it. Yes, it was incredibly racist, and yes, it was pretty terrible. and, And these guys were trying to make it better, and we had the opportunity to do something differently. And right after that, everything went really really wrong. So what happened then? What was this moment? What went wrong? And god, I you know, I had I had no idea uh <laughs> what I would find or what it was all about. And so it, again, just kind of a shocking naivete about what it was all about.
0: Yeah. Did you ever worry or feel out of place in any way as a white woman telling the story about black and brown men? Was that ever a concern to you or no, I'm a historian and I do this work?
1: Of course. I mean, you know, so, so again, my own subjectivity, my own subject positionality is always at the forefront of my mind. I mean, on the one hand, you know, it's, it's on the one hand, it's a story that feels very much a story that is kind of feels familiar and, and a, a story that feels mine because it feels like it's a story that's a city that i grew up in it's my family is my family is mixed my family is an inner city family it's a story i mean my family's been impacted by incarceration so on the one hand it feels like it's partially my story Mm
0: -hmm. so i feel
1: at home in my story on the other hand i know it's not my story at all and Mm -hmm. my my subject positionality as being white as being female as being all the things that i am means that it's not my story and so my my positionality means that it's not my story to tell other people's story it's my story it's my position to be a a vessel if you will I mean a scribe to let other people tell their stories and I'm very very acutely aware of that and so you'll notice in my book I hope anyway people will notice that in my book in one moment you will be you know in Rockefeller's room and you'll be in his, his office, he, you know, in his point of view. In the next moment, you'll be in D-Yard. In the next moment, you're going to be in the hostage circle. I try to the best of my ability to let people tell their own stories. And I am always trying in my books to let people speak because I actually don't, I don't presume to know what mm. people's stories are. And then my overarching story, which is me, the historian, is my training to try to make sense of the documents Mm. that I'm seeing. It's to try to use my training as the, you know, kind of the investigator to dig into those documents that someone else may not know how to find, uh, to to kind of dig, dig, dig into those, you know, FOIA requests that someone else may not know how to locate. So I'm trying to bring to bear my training, my, you know, where, where I've grown up, my kind of sensibility of what to look for, but always, always to be aware that, I, you know, no, this isn't my story and where it isn't my story to sit back, to let other people tell their stories and to honor those stories. And, and in fact, it's, it's funny because I got very, it was probably the Anyone who you will know who I ever have talked to in a book will tell you that what they've always heard out of my mouth to to the point where it was almost kind of like a mantra was this something I will always say, which is I I won't and I do not promise uh, to tell the story the way that you would. But I will always promise to honor your story Mm. because it is critical to me to let people's own stories come Mm. through um, because I'm not them. You know, and I right. can't pretend to be them. Yeah. What I really appreciate about the book is that that I felt like I really
0: got a sense of where people were coming from and the disagreements. Whether it was you know on large scale the disagreements between Oswald and Frank, or if it was like smaller, you know, within D yard, you know, different different prisoners having different feelings about different. You know, moments throughout, I felt like you really created this overreaching narrative that combined so many voices in a way that felt seamless. And I think that that's what's so special about this book is that you walk away from it, sort of understanding where everyone is coming from, even if you're like, that person was really fucking wrong and they were a terrible (laughs) person. Like, it's not like I'm like, oh, she makes Rockefeller super sympathetic, but I'm like, oh, I get it. Like, you brought in the perspectives of, the fact that he was trying to become in with Nixon and the boys and like that he was had aspirations of being a larger political figure, which again, eventually came to play. And then all of a sudden we're talking about the vice presidency and can we have this be part of the America's story or do we need to separate even more, you know, like all of that sort of political maneuvering is part of this story. And, and you bring it in, in such a beautiful way that it, it makes so much, I mean, it's like, you can't, I can't imagine this book without, without that stuff.
1: Although I will, I do have to say, it is interesting you mentioned that because I have to say that one of the things that I found very difficult to juggle is that I could see the nuance of. Bad guys, if you will, right? Um, between um, you know, I mean, I, I there was a lot of victims in this story. I will say, sure. um, you know, there was a lot of gray in this story mm, of, mm-hmm. of who were the bad guys because even even the troopers who came in there and committed such horror, such racist vile horror, as they right. came in there, in some in some fundamental. Element they should never have been there. They should never have been placed there, and being placed there was well above their pay grade. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And even having been placed there was part of the design of you know kind of the, the the power aspirations and racist aspirations of people well above their pay grade. And frankly. Uh, in their ranks there were people among them who had they not told the truth ultimately in courts of law we would not even know the depths of the depravity that actually happened so even um, in their ranks there were some people who had conscience but but where i could not actually find uh, even much as you i'm sure you saw m- much ability to to paint any gray was actually the the men in the suits at the end because Mm. because at the end of the day, at every turn, at every turn, the people who had the ability to have made this right, to say the right thing, to do the right thing, to stand up, the people that would have paid the least price, Mm -hmm. the people for whom this would have cost nothing but perhaps a bad headline, but perhaps Mm -hmm. a smear on their reputation uh, in the who's who uh, annals of history uh, did nothing. And they're still, frankly, doing nothing. They are still not letting the records be open. They are still not saying they're sorry. They're still not taking responsibility. And for those people, uh, there is no gray. Uh, yeah. It, you know, and that, and that, and so in that sense, um, it, perhaps my objectivity, uh, or maybe it isn't a question of objectivity. Maybe that is just simply a that is just simply the verdict.
0: Yeah. I mean, I didn't have any questions about gray area when it came to Rockefeller or or Oswald or any of those any of those men. I, Maybe some people could I, not. It wasn't for me. I it wasn't mm-hmm. going to happen that I was going to be like, oh, I feel so bad for them. Like I just yeah. I simply don't. I'm with you. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering in each section, you have a character, a person, a figure from the story that you sort of do a little snippet feature of. Um, and I'm wondering how you picked which people to feature in those sections.
1: Yeah, that's such a great question. Um, so even the first book that I wrote was about Detroit. And it was about, you know, Detroit, as many people may know, is a, is a city that uh, had a very important rebellion in 1967. And it's this, you know, the city that was also, I was trying to make sense of in my first book, you know, how does it become a city that is so controversial? You know, it becomes a city that's one of the most important black-led cities in the country. But yet, you know, in every headline, it's a city. Everyone's like, what happened to Detroit? How did Detroit become such a terrible city? It's like, no, it's not a terrible city, especially if you if you live there. So I'm trying to make sense of that city. and And I, in that city, picked someone to kind of lead each chapter to kind mm. of make it more personal. And so I felt that I, needed, I need to do that. I need to take all that big history and at some level let it first begin with, with a person. Mm-hmm. And that's just a kind of a narrative device that's very helpful for me to ground the bigger story in the stories of the people for whom it is, it is in that moment actually being lived. And mm-hmm. in this story, I felt that who is actually experiencing it, was so vastly different depending on what hat they wore. And so I had to think about who are the many hats in this mm-hmm. story. And um, I decided that, you know, there were the police, you know, there was the Rockefeller administration, there were the, um, the men in the yard, you know it, it just you know who are all the players here right. who are all the kind of central people who at the end of the day begin this story they're there right. in the beginning and they are there at the end yeah and so i picked people who were there at the beginning and they were there at the end and and, and i wanted to hear them kind of tell it
0: This is sort of a small world story. So when I finished reading your book, as I mentioned, I was obsessed with it and I was talking to everyone about it. And around that time, um, I live in L.A. and I was teaching fitness. I was teaching indoor cycling for, you know, L.A.'s fancy, rich, wealthy people, lots of Hollywood people. And this announcement came out that Big Black Story had maybe been sold. And Mm -hmm. the producer, one of the producers was the husband of one of my writers. So I went to her and I was like, have you read this book? Has your husband read this book? Like, I need to talk to someone about this. I'm so excited. And she was like, I haven't read it yet. But you know, one of the other people who rides here, his grandfather was a lawyer during Attica. And I was like, really? Who? She said, Carlos Goodman. So I'm like, holy shit. And I realized that it's Ernie Goodman's grandson is one of my like incredible writers. So I went up to him and I was like, I just read about your grandfather. And I so I started crying because I get emotional. I was like, I was so moved by this book. And I'd wondered if he'd read it. And he said he hadn't read the book, but he had read the little section about him, like the start of the chapter. And then he went on to tell me this incredible story of September 11th, 2001, which that anniversary is also coming up this week. It all kind of fits together right. and about how they were doing a 30 year reunion. And Carlos, my writer, his wife was pregnant. And she was flying on a plane on Tuesday. He had flown on Sunday and they were doing this big family commemoration and a commemoration of the event and everything. And and it had never dawned on me that, that all of those things, the 30th anniversary of Attica and September 11th and all of that. So it was just this like crazy, overwhelming moment. But what a small world to yeah, know this crazy. person in this weird way. Well, um, it's interesting
1: but- you mentioned the lawyers because I do think that it's really important actually to, to mention about Attica that... There's so much trauma in Attica and we do tend to focus on the trauma in Attica, but I think it's really, really important to mention about Attica that there's a whole nother part of this story. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, and I, and I always want to shout it out because it's the, it's the yin to the yang of the story, which is there is an extraordinary story of resistance and on the one hand, Attica is a story of repression and the ugliness. You know, it, is, it is a story that just takes your breath away at the inhumanity of uh, in, in, at the kind of core of American history. But on the other hand, it, it, it is a story of one of the most incredible human rights legal battles in american history one Mm -hmm. that that i would say rivals uh probably is more incredible than the legal defense effort of the scottsboro boys Hmm. of probably any legal the, the rosenbergs i mean any legal defense effort in american history when the attica brothers after the trauma of them being shot in d yard tortured in d yard Rather than the state of New York going after the perpetrators of that trauma, the state police, they go after the prisoners. They Mm -hmm. indict 62 of these prisoners on thousands of felony counts. And instead of folding, instead of rolling over, instead of uh, being indicted and going and doing, you know, hundreds of years of time, thousands of years of time for things that they did not do, they uh, marshaled. This incredible grassroots legal defense effort, young lawyers and young law students and old lawyers from around the country descend on upstate New York, from Detroit, from Boston, from Oakland, from San Francisco, from all over the country. And they they stay and they defend these guys. And these guys defend themselves as right. pro se lawyers. And as a result of that, they they win they keep the state of new york at bay and they succeed in in essentially thwarting the efforts of the state to railroad them for crimes they did not commit and that is the other part of this story and then right. they also refuse to let it stand that they have go- undergone this kind of trauma and thus begins the civil lawsuit against right. The state of New York and that goes on and it takes them 30 years, 29 years to be precise, but <laughs> they hold the state accountable for the trauma that they commit that is committed against them in in yard on that horrible last day. So, you know, it is really important to remember that because here we sit 50 years later that's the other legacy. That is, you know, mm-hmm. that's the other piece of it, which is why I really believe that here we are 50 years later and we are seeing that inheritance. It's, it's you know, prisons, prisons may be horrendous 50 years later, but, but that's the reason why 50 years later when we see prison strikes today, it's not coincidental that they, that they invoke Attica because that spirit is what they remember.
0: Yeah. We're going to take a quick break and then we'll be right back. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day. And it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. We're back. Um, I want to ask you about the cover and the title. I'm curious where those both came from, Both the, how you chose that particular image from the yard and then also the title, specifically Blood on the Water, where, where that comes from.
1: So I love this question um, because... There's many, many powerful images that come out of Attica and oftentimes people pick the image that is the one of the last day when all of the men are being rounded up and they are naked and they are um, being essentially forced to run a gauntlet. It is a horrific picture. They are, um, they're they're lined up, you can see them from the back it It looks like it is a, it's a it's a torture photo frankly, mm-hmm. and it is graphic and it is definitely eye catching and it is definitely one that would evoke the core content of this book in fact is in part which is the 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 trauma that is committed by the state of New York in this book. But I didn't, I didn't want that. I, I really wanted the image of this book to be what began this rebellion, which was standing together on behalf of the idea that, uh, that the people that are serving time in this country remain human beings that can collectively stand together uh, to be treated as human. And that image on the, the front invokes that that they are all standing there together and if you look carefully at that photograph that's what you see you see you know hundreds of people all standing there together kind of in that image and the bars that you see, which is also the the, the artist that did that photograph, I mean, they're there, but they're sort of not there. It's mm-hmm. it's a very kind of ephemeral kind. Of, you know, they're 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 sort of opaque. They're not really there. They're there, right. but they're not really there. So I just love the 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 artwork that they did for that cover. And then the title comes from one of the men. Um, his name is James Lee Asbury, and um, this is a quote that he says finally to a judge when they finally have the civil trial and the civil trial, they win all these damages. And then right when they win them, a higher court tries to overthrow the whole thing. Unbelievable. The higher court basically says, after all this, you're not a class. You need to go back and litigate this one by one. Meanwhile, Mm. of course, these guys are 29 years older. Half of them are, you know, ill or some of them have already died. And luckily there's a judge who says, you know what? We're going to settle this. And he allows them each to testify to their trauma just to get it on their record, just because. He's not going to cross-examine them. He just says, I want you to be able to get your story on the record. Mm. And one guy does, and his name is James Lee Asbury. And part of his testimony is this incredible – it just stuck with me. I couldn't get it out of my head. And he says as he's laying there, as these troopers are just shooting, shooting, shooting. And he says, I'm laying there basically in this muddy – it's raining that morning – and he looks up and he says, "All I could see was blood in the water," and I just could not get that image out of my mind. I couldn't get his words out of my mind, and of course, it resonated so powerfully with the words of the prison activist George Jackson, who had been murdered uh, in the weeks prior to the Attica uprising, which had such a profound effect on the men in Attica. His name was George Jackson. He was a he was a, you know, a prison rebel himself. He had been murdered by guards in um, San Quentin. And um, he had written a book called Blood in My Eye about essentially, you know, all the trauma that the incarcerated were going through for standing up for human rights in California. So the synergy of those titles, I just, I just that was it. I mean, I just knew that was the title. And um, I really invite everyone to watch the latest documentary by Stanley Nelson called Attica, because I had the opportunity to work with Stanley on this documentary, and you'll see James in this documentary, and you'll get to hear him speak. And it, it's just all the brothers are in this documentary. It is an incredibly powerful testimony. Um, you'll, you'll get to hear so many of the brothers talk in this documentary that you'll also read about in the book. It's, it's really, it's extraordinary. Wait, where
0: can people watch it? Do you know?
1: Well, uh, the, the week of the anniversary okay. on Showtime. And then of okay. course, you'll be able to watch it. It's just it's a it, and you'll hear so much of what you've read in the book. You'll get to hear them talk about um, just on their own terms. But but James, he just that was his testimony.
0: Wow. Um, I meant to ask you this when we were talking about documents on September 11th. What happened to the documents that were housed at the World Trade Center after September 11th? Were they destroyed or had they been moved?
1: They had been moved, and the the documents had been moved into storage. And of course, they're all still there. The <laughs> irony of the documents is that we know exactly what's there. We have the um, I have the full inventory of all of the documents that the state of New York has related to Attica. I can tell you what's in box, you know, 140. Um, folder too. I can, it has an inventory. I can tell you pretty much what's in there, but we can't get them. And if you ask for them, they say it's protected by grand jury privilege, even though uh, what I've asked for it is, is not grand jury related. So um, we're still fighting to get them open right now. There's a, a, State Senator in New York, Senator Myrie, who's trying to pass legislation to uh, ease this so that we can get access, but they are still blocking access to the Attica records, even though it is a state prison. Hmm. The State pay, state taxpayers pay for it. This happened on um, state time, the public's time, the public's dime. It is outrageous, but wow. um, we still we still don't know. We still can't see them. If
0: you get the documents will you write a new part to the book? Will you change the book? Will you write a different book or no? No.
1: No, Um, you know, the book is now its own historical (laughs) record. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, there are, there are amazing historians out there. There are amazing scholars. And, um, People who will who will take it forward, you know, they will, they will write it. They'll write their own versions of this. They'll take it forward. This is its own moment in time. This is 2016. I couldn't have written it differently than I did. It, it, it will not be amended and updated. It is what it is. But I hope, I pray that they will we will one day see the full story. And of course there will be things in this book that will be proven undoubtedly to, to be inaccurate um, once we see the full story and, and that's okay with me. I mean, I, I, I welcome that. I, I hope that we learn more and more.
0: So you say it's its own thing. I think we should, I haven't mentioned it yet, but it's not just its own thing. It's a Pulitzer prize winning book, which is <laughs> like, uh, if it, that's its own thing too, I have to know what I've never spoken to someone who's won a Pulitzer Prize. So this is a big deal for me. I'm Pulitzer adjacent. <laughs> Congratulations a few years late. But what's that moment like for you when you find out that your book won this incredible award? Like, do you freak out? Did you have any sense it could happen? Like, was anyone in your ear like, you know, tomorrow they're gonna announce Heather, I think you got a shot. Like, tell
1: me about it. Oh, uh, you know, it- <laughs> I have to say, no, first of all, absolutely not. Um, you get you, you you. I had I had no idea. I didn't I didn't know it was in the running. I had no idea. You get no warning. Zero zero. No no no. Um, I mean no. But I I will tell you that my reaction was was so crazy because I just I was I was so overwhelmed, but mostly because I just was so grateful. But it, this is going to sound so crazy. My first thought about it was that it was going to, I hoped, legitimize their story. Mm-hmm. I, I know this. Like, I can't really, I can't really put into words what I'm trying to say here. But it just, to, they, these men have been trying to tell their story at this point. At this point, it was 45 years. They had been saying that this had happened to them for 45 years mm. and that this had happened and that this this had happened. And not just them, I mean the hostages, they had been traumatized. Their husband's brothers' sons had been, you know, murdered as well. Mm-hmm. And nobody had believed anybody that this that this trauma had happened. And, you know, nothing but a fraternity hazing. This hadn't happened. You know, lies, lies. Right. Like. And then you add on to that the millions of families that, had been, that have been traumatized by the mass incarceration that followed it. The cities that have been gutted that followed this. The collective damage that has been done to our nation by the lies that was told at Attica and, you know, the the Attica plus, you Mm -hmm. know, the 60s, the lies Mm -hmm. that these people have gotten, the racial racist stoking that gets away with. I was so overcome. And if the Pulitzer would allow that to have the imprimatur of you can read this Mm -hmm. and it's got legitimacy then that just filled me. I mean, I just burst into tears. It was just like, I I can't believe, like, thank you. Thank you. Because maybe then people will read this and believe this, that this is legit, that this is good, that this is okay. It just was just overwhelming to me for that reason.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's why I got the book. I think I I must have purchased it because it said winner of the Pulitzer Prize on it, you know? So I think, I definitely think that those awards, they do mean something, especially when we're talking about History that hasn't been told correctly, or that has been obscured, or lied about, and all and all of those things, I guess. Together, this question is sort of um, to bring you back down to earth as a not only a Pulitzer Prize winner, but also a genius, a MacArthur genius. You're all the things. Well, Heather. no, not
1: a MacArthur. Oh,
0: I not mean, a uh, no, no, a Guggenheim, a Guggenheim, a Guggenheim, genu- <laughs> a Guggenheim genius. I knew you were a genius. <laughs> I'm sorry, I can't keep my genius straight. <laughs> but what is a word you can never spell correctly on the first try?
1: Oh, my God. Um, <laughs> uh, well, for it, it, tomorrow. <laughs> oh, okay. That's Does, a is good it one. Two, is it two R's or is it two M's? <laughs> I'm a terrible speller, so
0: that's a great question for someone else. But I think it has two R's and one M.
1: I'm going to go with that. I'm going to hope that I'm right, but I have no but he, clue. But here's, but here's the word that I always spell right because okay. I used to watch Mr. Mr. Rogers, Friends. Mm-hmm. Because I can always sing it. F-R-I-E-N-D special. (laughs) You are my friend. (laughs) Because that's how old I am. (laughs) I love that. That's so funny. (laughs)
0: Um, As far as your writing process goes, how do you like to write? Where are you? How many hours a day? How often can you have music playing? Do you have snacks and beverages? Like kind of set the scene for how you write. Oh gosh.
1: Well, so I am a, I am somebody that I came at this also Bass Ackwards. I have, uh, I have three kids. I started grad school with a five month old baby. I, I have always written in the middle of so much chaos, so much, you know, I I went, came from Detroit. I went to U of M. I, I went to grad school at Princeton. I didn't even know where Princeton was. I showed up at (laughs) Princeton with my five-month-old baby. I burst into tears, like, I can't even believe we got in here, Dylan. Like, where are we? (laughs) Like, so I started writing a dissertation only because my mom would help me like watch my child. Like, I've always written in chaos. I wrote in coffee shops. I wrote in, you know, at you know, midnight at Caribou or, you know, whatever the coffee shop was locally. So I've always written in complete chaos. And that's so it takes me longer. <laughs> um, I've never been someone that can write three paragraphs, and it's excellent. I draft a million times, and I've gotten better. I think at at trusting my voice and 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 trusting that I can write things that are good. But you know, I think it's 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 a process, and I think that it's something that you just get better at the more you try and the more you do it. But when you write in chaos, I think that um, it does take a little longer when you write with kids, when you write with life around you, when you write right. with, you know, um, I've been at this a long time. <laughs> and, you know, five jobs later, lots of kids later, it's it's just a process for me. And and I also think it's really important to write as a historian in the past, but I also try to write a lot in the present. I try to write, you know, articles and Op eds and try to make history matter in the present. So that mm-hmm. also is something that I'm, I'm always trying to think about. How is it the past that matters to the present? So I'll, I might write a little bit in the past, but then like shift gears and try to write an article about the present. So that, so it's kind of, I'm always doing it in different spaces at different times. It's not a very good answer, but I'm not that no, person. It's a great who could answer. Just, I can't like slow myself down and go to the library because it's, there's never room for that. Cause someone's saying, you know, where's the grilled cheese sandwich or, you know, now my kids are grown up, but it never stops. You know, there's still the call about some crisis or another or some, sure. there's something always going on.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, it's actually a great answer. And I've been doing this podcast for three plus years now and everyone has a different answer and turns out nobody actually goes to the library and does these things. Like turns out nobody writes the way that everyone thinks that everyone else writes. You're all doing it great. So don't worry. Um, I wanna know, well, I sort of know that you're working on something else. So I sort of want you to tell us about the Move Bombing book. Um, I don't know when it's coming. I don't know if you know when it's coming. I don't know how these, I don't know how these historical books, like how long they take. I imagine it's not like writing you know, um, something else that might take someone six months. So I'm curious sort of what what that's about and when maybe we can expect it without putting inappropriate pressure on you.
1: Well, I think it's going to be like this book. It's going to take a long time probably. I mean, I got help, help me. I hope it doesn't take <laughs> and if my if my editors are listening, I'm sure they're praying that it doesn't remotely take as long as the other book take. But but no, it, it it'll take a long time because like Attica, it is a story that is incredibly complicated. It is mm. a story that is layered. It is a story that people are also telling themselves members of MOVE, former police officers who were there, uh, people in Philadelphia who experienced it are all part of this story. And it's not my job to tell their story. It's my job Mm -hmm. to listen to their story. But still, it is my job as a historian to recover the documents that are there that no one knows about, to piece together what happened, to, to make sense of what uh, it all means, and it's also a story interestingly, like Attica that is unfolding as we speak in a way that I had not predicted. Um, mm. every day, there are new revelations about uh, you know, they've just you know they they've found the remains of move children at the at the one of the museums. Meanwhile, recently, there have been uh, the children of move members who have recently um, defected from the organization, and they have a very different story to tell than mm. than. Uh, some of the members who are still there and uh, you know it's it's so i i need to kind of keep some distance from it try to tell the long history of it but at the same time it it takes some time to piece it all together so it'll be a while but like attica i want it to be layered and i want it to actually matter because i think just like attica matters to prisons today i think move has a lot to say about policing about Mm. big cities Uh, uh, philadelphia is you know, important in that landscape, right? You know, Rizzo's police force matters to how we police in a lot of cities today Mm. and, and move is emblematic of, of a lot of, uh, relations between the black community and, 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 um, policing today. So, so I'm, I'm, I'm at it. I'm listening. I'm working. Um, it'll take a while.
0: Okay. We'll wait, we'll wait patiently, but we will be, uh, pre-ordering as soon as you tell us it's time. Um, I just have one one more question for you, I guess two. One is for people who love Blood in the Water. what are other books you might recommend to them that are sort of in conversation with um and then also you mentioned the documentary that will be out when this episode airs, so folks can watch that as well. But as far as books, are there other things that are in conversation with your work?
1: Oh, my goodness, um you know there's there are there's, there's such a rich range of incredibly powerful books out there right now. And I would just literally encourage you to go on sites like, you know, Goodreads uh, and just kind of see what people are reading that like a book that you like. And I know that sounds like not an answer, but really (laughs) encourage that because, because what you'll find is that it depends what you like about it. If you like Mm. books about this moment in history, Elizabeth Hinton's book right now, for example, called America on fire. If you really want to understand this moment and this episode in context of other things going on it's more you know it's not a it's not a storytelling book in the kind of the way that blood and water is but it's an incredibly important mm. book to read right now if you want a book that's kind of a storytelling book very similar to blood in the water tim tyson's book on emmett till which came out a mm. few years ago is an incredibly Rich book. I mean, really. I mean, he he talks to the wives of the people who murdered Emmett Till. I mean, it just he he's able to like all these years later, like to get right. in the heads of these people who who you know knew what was going on and to kind of reckon with that level of, of violence and and kind of it just it's just kind of awe inspiring that kind of storytelling to kind of make sense of it all and you know and and just to kind of think about what does this all mean later so it really depends on what what kind mm-hmm. of storytelling that you want but there are so many incredible books like that and so you just kind of go look what other people are reading that are <laughs> yeah. in that same genre and you will find them they are there and I'm just so grateful that you have your your podcast because if you want to li- if you really want to know, listen to the Stacks podcast yeah. because because you're constantly no really I mean that's where that's where I actually find them because you actually tap you tap them you you tag people to them I mean quite uh, frankly,
0: well thank you that really it means a lot.
1: Um, Hi, ah, just sort of a full circle moment. I could cry.
0: I just can't believe I'm talking to you about this book, finally, so many years later. But my last question for you is if you could have one person, dead or alive, read this book, who would you want it to be?
1: Honestly, um, it kind of took me up a little bit to even say it, but um, I would say two people. I, I wish two people would be um, Elizabeth Fink, who's the lawyer um, that... <sighs> She's the lawyer that I went to when I first started this book and asked her if she would help me by giving me some of her sources to piece together the trials of the brothers, both the original criminal trials, but also the civil trial of what had happened to them, because she was the woman who was there. She was there at the original criminal trial. She was there at the Attica brothers defense. She was there as the kind of force, the tour de force at the final civil trials to kind of bring some measure of justice for them. And, um, and she ended up dying like literally um, Mm. the month before my book came out and I was never able to finally show her what Mm -hmm. this book was. And I, it just pains me so much because I wanted her to be able to see what the final, what the full book was, what the whole story ended up being, how it all came together at the end Mm. and particularly the civil trials and particularly the full story. And the other person is, is Tom Wicker because Tom Wicker, who was an observer here, when I interviewed him in Vermont, he just broke down sobbing Mm. because he felt such guilt that he had not been able to tell the Attica brothers Mm. that, Um, you know, that he hadn't been able to stop this. Wow! He hadn't been able to stop what happened. And if I, if he could have read this, he would have understood that he couldn't have stopped this. Hmm. When I saw the document that made clear that they were not going to give an ultimatum when they went in on that morning, that Hmm. they were going to go in no matter what, yeah. I understood what I don't think any of those observers finally understood, which was huh. there was nothing anyone could have done to stop right. us. Rockefeller was going to go in with force. He was going to huh. send those troopers in and there was going to be a massacre no matter what anyone tried to do. And I think that if... Tom Wicker could have read that. He finally would have had some peace because I believe that that plagued him till the day he died. I think that truly, truly plagued him and it just breaks my heart that he couldn't have read that.
0: Wow. Heather, this was so incredible. Thank you so much. Everyone at home, you can read Blood in the Water. You should. We're going to be discussing it the last Wednesday of the month. I believe it's September 29th. Please get your copy, get to reading. It's long, but it moves so fast. I promise. Um, I read it in four days the first time and in six days the second time. I promise you can do it. Heather, thank you so much.
1: Thank you so much, JC. Take care.
0: You too. And everyone else, we will see you in the stacks. Thank you all for listening. And thank you so much to Heather Ann Thompson for being my guest. Thank you also to Allison Morales for helping to coordinate this interview. The Stacks Book Club pick for September is Blood in the Water by Heather Ann Thompson. We will discuss the book on Wednesday, September 29th with Derica Purnell. If you love the show, head to patreon.com slash stacks and join the Stacks Pack. Make sure you're subscribed to the Stacks Review. Get your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, please take a moment to leave us a rating and a review. For more from The Stacks, follow us on social media at the pod on Instagram, at thestackspod underscore on Twitter, and check out our website, thestackspodcast.com. Thank you to our sound editor, Christian Duenas, our graphic designer, Robin McCrite, and for our theme music from Tagirajus. The Stacks is created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas.